This is Guns and Butter. must accept that as the ecological crisis wends its course, these kinds of disasters results are going to become more and more characteristic of it. And that we're entering, I mean, I hate to say this, but we're entering on an epoch of disaster of this kind. And it'll occur other places as well. It is occurring even as we speak. I mean, the weakening of the fabric of our society, rendering it much more vulnerable to natural upheavals and, you know, possibilities of pandemics and all the like. This is indeed the predicament we are in. And we must face this with a calm, cool, and yet enraged eye. We cannot tolerate this kind of development which threatens the fundamental sanctity and integrity of life itself. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Joel Covell. Joel Covell is author of The Age of Desire, Against the State of Nuclear Terror, and The Enemy of Nature, The End of Capitalism or the End of the World, among other books. Since 1988, he has been professor of social studies at Bard College in Annandale, New York. Since 2003, he has been editor-in-chief of the quarterly journal Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Unusual for an ecology journal, it starts with the question of capitalism's impact on nature, how to address issues of ecological crisis, and how to get to the root causes and prevent them. On November 11, 2005, Joel Covell spoke on ecological crisis and opportunity for radical change in Sonoma County, California. Today's show, Capitalism and Katrina. The idea of my book, The Enemy of Nature, is that unless we regard this crisis from the standpoint both of capitalism as its driving course and from the standpoint of a kind of socialism, I emphasize a kind of socialism as its adequate resolution, uh, we are not being true to ourselves as citizens of this planet. We are bypassing the most fundamental causal mechanisms and we are bypassing the possibilities of a hopeful transformation of our society. I'll have more to say about that as I go on, but I want to underscore that. Uh, The ecological crisis is, uh, by all odds, by all measures, the most profound crisis ever faced by our species. It is the the time of reckoning when 6,000 or more years of development is coming to a, a boil where it's apparent that the products of human activity, collective social activity, are no longer capable of being buffered or assimilated by the natural forces, the natural structures that underlie our civilization, that the times, therefore, have become profoundly out of joint, that this is growing, that this is a uh, careening out of control, if we like, uh, and that well, I don't want to speak in apocalyptic terms. I will go so far as to say the very idea of a worthwhile future depends upon the way we comprehend and, on that basis, resolve this grave crisis. The word sustainability is, is used often, and 
I just want to say to you that we can talk about sustainability of the part or sustainability of the whole. You can build partially sustainable microenvironments. You can follow uh, rules of permaculture, for instance, or do some kind of sophisticated construction of a, a holistic microsystem or of a community, if you like, a, a community of people who strive to live harmoniously and in harmony with the earth. But you will never come to grips with the unsustainability of the whole, of the entire civilization in which we live, unless we come to grips with those dynamics which drive it onwards and which lead into the chaotic and catastrophic, increasingly catastrophic conditions under which we live. And so I want to talk more about that in these remarks, not from the standpoint of being apocalyptic, as I said before, or a doomsayer, that is not at all my uh, temperament, but uh, rather from the standpoint of saying that it's only when you grasp the radical unsustainability of the whole, that is to say of our civilization as a whole, that you can be freed to take those measures to appreciate what it is that is going on and what can be done, hopefully at the level of the whole, but also at the level of the, the part, of the individual, of the individual person, the individual community, an individual town, society, however you want to look at it. And that whole, when I say capitalism, I don't mean to say that it's the capitalist economy that is the problem with the whole. I mean to say that capitalism is a way in which our civilization is structured, which includes a certain form of economy that dominates over society. In pre-capitalist societies, you had economies that were, so to speak, embedded within society. So the economy was one factor in a network, a matrix of social relations. And economic activity could be inhibited by moral considerations or spiritual considerations. Economic activity was never considered an end or an aim in itself in pre-capitalist society. With the coming of capitalism, which is a very lengthy subject in and of itself, and maybe we can return to that, but with the coming of capitalism, what you had is a society that is now embedded within an economy and is driven by an economy that predicates itself upon the reduction of everything in the universe and certainly everything on Earth to a monetary term, to a value term, which is driven by the accumulation of wealth which is seen primarily as an accumulation of this quantitative factor, where quantity overrides quality in all respects, or to use a technical but necessary term that Marx introduced, where value or exchange value, which is the form of the commodity that has been determined by capitalist relations, overrides the use value, the quality of things, so that number overcomes being, having overcomes being. And in that circumstance, human beings are sort of thrown open to a limitless craving. And the very fabric of human life is radically destabilized. All spiritualities which in their very nature are based upon a kind of, a, not limited, but the, the notion of, a, of limit and boundary. Because unless you have a boundary, you can't go beyond the boundary. Remember, the key word in spirituality is sacred. Sacred means what is unique and inexchangeable. 
the sacred place, for instance. Places are sacred. Uh, capitalism as a mode of production, as a mode of society, constantly destroys the notion of boundedness, destroys the notion of the sacred by converting everything to its monetary value. Now, of course, there are significant resistances to that. And in fact, the only coherent way to understand the uprisings of uh, alternative spiritualities and indeed fundamentalist religions in our time, some of which are very malignant tendencies indeed, as we can see, should be regarded, in my view, as an attempt on human beings to defend themselves against the ruthless dissolving of cultural and communal boundaries, the ruthless undermining of all sense of tradition, of place, of situatedness, by this ever-encroaching kind of cancerous outgrowth of the exchange principle, where everything is then sort of equated to everything else through the monetary value, and that monetary value is subjected to uh, limitless expansion. So there's much more to be said about that, but that's a broad notion of what I'm trying to say here and get at, and that this arrangement is fundamentally unsustainable, the most fundamental way possible unsustainable. And I'll just mention three dimensions in which this occurs, and then I'll start talking about a concrete reality that we've all seen recently, and then we'll move towards the question of what is to be done, and then we'll have a question period, answer period. It's unsustainable in a threefold way. Under the regime of capital, the whole world being reduced to number for the sake of profit, okay, it is necessary to devalue and to lower the cost of those entities which are not in themselves profitable but enter into the making of profit, namely nature, natural resources, the land, the bodies of human beings, the infrastructure that we've created. That was the very foundation of the productive process. The man who inaugurated our journal, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism, James O'Connor, was a professor at University of California, Santa Cruz, and he developed this as the so-called second contradiction of capitalism, that capital degrades the conditions of its own production and induces further crises because of that. And we'll understand that a little more concretely in a minute or two. Uh, the first contradiction of capitalism, by the way, is, is the original mechanism that uh, underlies economic crises, namely that by constantly attempting to, um, to lower the cost of labor power, which is one of the inputs into the production process, the capitalist succeeds or tries to succeed in cheating the workers out of their value they produce, but in doing so also removes from the workers, which is to say everybody, the possibility of buying the various products they make so that you have inventories piling up and these classical economic crises are resulting, so-called realization crisis, the first contradiction of capitalism. O'Connor added to that the second contradiction, which is the foundation of a radical ecological thinking, at least according to the terms we develop. But that's one of three pillars, or you might, pillar is not the right word because it's not a foundation, one of three tendencies within capital that is radically unsustainable. The second is this notion that because everything is turned to money and because money has no limit, capital expansion has no limit. And because capital is a ruthless system, capitalism is a ruthless system whereby individuals expropriate the means of production from 
the masses of people arrogated to themselves, but capitalism is inherently an individualized system which is characterized by universal competition between capitals. Everybody agrees on this. The only disagreement is whether it's a good thing or not. Okay? Uh, the average capitalist rationalizes it through the ideologies of social Darwinism, saying, you know, survival of the fittest, this is how the highest forms of life come about, this is the way of the universe, blah, 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 endless competition, you know, ruthless dog-eat-dog, uh, -dog. that's a good thing, okay. And um, me, I say this the opposite, very bad thing. One way is it's a very bad thing, I mean, there are many ways, but one way is a very bad thing. When combined with the tendency of a capitalist firm to, not the tendency, the necessity to think in terms of money, which is, has no upper limit, since you can always add zeros to any amount of money and you know, just multiply it by 10 that way. 10 to the 99th power, I mean, just use four digits and you have a number that's astronomically large and comprehensible. You can easily write it on a check, you know. It's 10 to the 99th power dollars and no cents. <laughs> uh, why not? That's my profit, so this venture. Uh, but combined with the competition mechanism, combined with the individual nature of capitalist accumulation and productive relationships, um, that means that each and every capitalist can never rest, you understand. So even if a capitalist wanted to just take what is reasonable for himself, he can't do that because if he does, the next guy is going to knock him off. He's going to be eaten by the next capitalist. One capitalist destroys many, Marx writes in Capital Volume 1, and it's absolutely the case. It's an absolute law of capitalist accumulation that which results in concentration of capitals, a giganticism, but Never any peace, never any surcease, nothing of the sort can ever obtain. And in fact, you know, the richer you are, the less secure you become because <clears throat> that just means you have more things to worry about. Is General Motors happy? Of course not. You know, my goodness, Toyota is taking up, is catching up with General Motors. They only have a hundred billion dollars in the bank. But no, they can't ever rest. They can't ever uh, settle down. If any individual capitalist did that, he would soon be bounced by his board of directors, okay, or be punished by the stock market. Because if the rate of profit should decline below the average for the field, no matter how rich he is, he would be seen as a failure. And soon enough, we'll be out on the street, although uh, admittedly with what they call a golden parachute, but that's so. He's not suffering as an individual. But the point is that these inherent features of the capitalist system means that it must continue to grow without end. There can be no, no limit to the growth of the capitalist system as a whole. And that truth is then ensconced in economic theory and in political policy and in, and in state administrative policy as uh, the necessity for growth, okay, at all costs, the necessity for growth. But when you, when you have that, when you, and you realize that growth involves the degradation of, of the conditions of production, as we mentioned, the infrastructure, the bodies of workers, and, and nature at large, you can see that the necessity for growth is the necessity for endless degradation of nature as a whole, and of human beings, you know. Which will manifest itself as cancers or emotional breakdowns in all the ways it devolves through the actual organisms of the human being. That's the second point. Uh, why do we need another point? We need another point because 
well, first of all, it exists, <laughs> but second of all, because you might say, well, there's lots of ways that this could be overcome. You could have uh, you know, systems of rational taxation. You could uh, have pollution controls. You could have uh, uh, agreements between the nations, agreements within industries, and so on and so forth. Uh, look, at, look at Finland. Look at Finland. That's a capitalist country. It does very, very well. Uh, in fact, if we had the social environment, if we had the environmental policies of Finland, we wouldn't be worrying about this. And you say, well, see, Finland is Nokia, a great giant company. Finland's amazing. They have this, uh, you know how they do traffic tickets in Finland? They, <laughs> they find you according to your wealth. Wow, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So a, a guy was caught speeding and, uh, you know, went like 20, 30 kilometers over the speed limit and he had to pay $100,000 fine. <laughs> because he was a rich man and it was considered appropriate for him. And of course they know how much everybody has too. So you say, yeah, well that's great, so I, we'll do that too. But the answer is no, we won't do that. We, that is to say the United States and China, the great capitalist powers won't do that. And there's a difference between a great capitalist power and a middle rank or lesser capitalist power. In that the great capitalist power has also followed up with another tendency of capitalist relationships. They have, they have become great by becoming a ruthless. They have become great by imposing inequality throughout the economic system. Finland, Scandinavia in general, are societies with relatively uh, harmonious internal social relations. Can you say that of the United States, that we have relatively harmonious social? What we have, of course, is a massive propaganda and public relations and mass culture apparatus that, you know, advertising that depicts it that way. But anybody knows that you scratch the surface of the society, you find seething hatreds. Though subjectively, you can just look at the objective polarization of wealth between the rich and the poor which it becomes obscene, 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 and seen endlessly, uh, um, widening differences between the rich and the poor in this society. You're listening to author and professor Joel Covell. Today's show, Capitalism and Katrina. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, I submit to you, when you have those endlessly widening differences, you have the third reason why a capitalist society cannot remediate its anti-ecological tendencies, and that is because a society of such radical differences between rich, rich and poor does not possess the internal harmony or rationality to in, enforce, let alone understand what has to be done economically. And in fact, it tends towards authoritarian, militaristic solutions. It tends towards imposing various kinds of racisms which divide the uh, lower classes amongst themselves and keep them from rebelling and further separate and fragment the communities of this country and do all the things which make it unable for this society to rationally contend with its ecological crisis. And so I say to you that all of this these fine propositions by ecological economists and the, and the environmental studies uh, programs are not worth the paper they are printed on because they are conducted in, a, in the context of a society that is so fundamentally riven with poverty and inequality and racism and the like that it cannot even imagine, much less enact, the rationality of a society like Finland. And that's, I'll argue that one until the kingdom come, but the point being that you take those three principles together 
and you see that we are an unsustainable society. And since we are the leading power, we are the superpower, some say the hyperpower, we are an unsustainable civilization. And if you're going to deal with the ecological crisis, you can deal with it small scale, and that's comforting in a way to, you know, in faut cultivating those jardins, as Voltaire's uh, Candide said, we have to we just let's cultivate our own gardens. But you can't do that because we have a globalized society. We have the reach of the great trans-statal institutions like the International Monetary Fund, which is run out of the United States Treasury, okay, which imposes the imperatives of U.S. capital across the globe, and the same thing with the World Bank, and the same thing with the World Trade Organization, and all the other apparatus and rigmarole, which is working to try to bring the whole society, the whole of civilization, under the aegis of this one principle of capital and its accumulation. So it's a struggle. It hasn't gotten there yet, but it's, it's striving everywhere, and it penetrates every, every aspect of social existence in order to do so. Now, that's the setting with which I would like to discuss this recent development that we saw was announced by the appearance in the end of August of the hurricane uh, eponymously named Katrina in the historic and brilliant city of New Orleans. And, um, and that um, was what we call a disaster. Okay. And that wasn't the greatest natural disaster in terms of, of uh, destructive power, even in the last year. I mean, the, the, the tsunami, the end of last December was far greater. The earthquake in Pakistan was far greater. And none of these are natural, by the way. Disasters are never a natural concept because uh, disaster means relative to human expectations and the integrity of human societies and, and the, what we feel and experience and the, what we think we could be doing about things. Uh, all that enters into disasters. I mean, calamities on a far larger physical scale have occurred countless times throughout the eons and will continue to occur countless times. But we're talking about something within human civilization. Now, it made Katrina a disaster. It was obviously the, the overwhelming of a city by floodwaters, the uh, ravaging of its, of its communities, the, the uh, abandonment of uh, great sectors of its population, the un incredible unfeelingness and incompetence of the government, and all of those things that entered into it. And we would like to dwell on those, uh, if particularly we don't care for the present President, as I'm, if anybody here does, I'm sorry, I hope I don't offend you, um, <laughs> was revealed for the fool and the scoundrel and the unspeakable jerk that he is and, and all that stuff. And we can go on about that. And there's a certain satisfaction um, about that. But it, it's a distraction because what Katrina did is it exposed like an eruption from below the, um, the monuments of this ecological crisis. The ecological crisis goes on all the time, okay? Every traffic jam is part of the ecological crisis. Every piece of suburban sprawl is part of the ecological crisis. Every, you know, increase in infantile autism is part of the ecological crisis, all right? Every pandemic, well, that's already become a catastrophe, a disaster. But the disaster is an intensification of it. It's when the crisis uh, moves together more rapidly so it sort of hits you in the face. Um, 
An ecological crisis itself is, is sort of like when different, different parts of the, the human and natural world are destabilized by capitalism and, and its other associated forces, because I don't want to reduce it, but capitalism is the driving force, uh, that they then interact with each other and produce these nonlinear changes, which are kind of unpredictable. We can talk about uh, Katrina in this light. First of all, the storm itself, as we know, was of enormous strength. And it wasn't an isolated storm of enormous strength. We know that storms, particularly the hurricanes in the Caribbean, but storms everywhere have been much stronger lately. I mean, just that uh, tornado that ripped up the little trailer park in southern uh, Indiana and killed what, about 30 people. It's rather unusual. But no matter how you measure storms, they are about 30% stronger on the average than they were 25, 30 years ago. Big increase. Okay. And we don't have to mince words. We understand that this is due to global warming. I mean, you know, we can, there's a scientific discussion you can have about this. Is it cyclical? Will it go away? Is it an El Nino effect? As if El Nino was not effective also by global warming. Uh, and so on and so forth. Is it, you know, is it the solar flares? Is it, you know, whatever, you know. And we should investigate these things, but there comes a time when you have to say enough, the preponderance of evidence is overwhelming, and we understand global warming to be due to the propulsion into the atmosphere of gases that trap heat and so on and so forth. I needn't get into the mechanics of this. I'm sure you're as well informed about it as I am. Except I would say, which you probably also know, that as bad as global warming has been, it's also it's pretty unsettling to know that it's by no means reached its full extent, because what that's, when that's going to happen, you're going to see the seas rising by about a meter or more, and that has to do with the melting of the polar ice, or Greenland's ice cap. And that introduces more nonlinear changes, as you know, because of the melting of permafrost in Siberia frees methane, and that's even a more, a more potent accumulator of heat, and, uh, or the melting of the polar ice removes the albedo effect by which ice radiates heat back into the atmosphere and the waters absorb the heat more directly. So all of this is now, um, again, it's one of those interacting nonlinear events that tells us that global warming uh, is not only increasing, but increasing at a greater than linear rate. Okay. And unpredictable in every one of its essentials, but highly predictable in the sense that we can expect these violent storms at the very least, as well as, you know, weather extremes, droughts, and all that. We don't want to get into that right now. It's not germane, but it's obviously germane to our future, and we owe it to ourselves to understand this. But in any event, Katrina results from the heating of the waters and the heating of the waters then transmitted into the hurricane with the force scale, you know, 160, 170 mile an hour winds, unheard of in my lifetime. Now, the driving cause of global warming, well, let's not mince words again. It has to be a system of growth that is unlimited that will not stop. Uh, my goodness, I drove up. <laughs> from San Francisco and the Petaluma Auto Parks. You couldn't make that up. <laughs> it's, it's like endless miles. And you know, and these are, a lot of these cars are unsold. You know, there's an overcapacity in the, in the automobile industry of about 30 million cars a year. That's why every time you turn on the TV set, you're going to be hit by a car ad, even though they've 
Now they're going to have cars that aren't quite as fuel-devouring, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to have a lot more of them. And the point is they've got to sell all those cars, which creates the everyday disasters of the traffic and the urban sprawl and commodity that eats the earth, as one of my colleagues has put it. So, all right, the storm itself, therefore, is a function of one line of capitalist development, namely that which mandates that we consume and burn all the fuel we can do because there's more money in that and more money in cars and more money in big cars, and so it goes. All right? And there are internal corrections, but the tendency is very real. Point one. But that's not the whole disaster. That storm interacts with a locale which has been systematically deprived, defunded, neglected, allowed to rot in its most fundamental self-protective mechanisms. If you remember, I said there was this basic second contradiction of capitalism. That was the first of the three principles. And one of its tendencies was the allowing of infrastructure to go bad. Going bad means allowing it to be subject to uh, entropy principle. It takes work to overcome the entropy principle, which is a tendency towards disorder and statistical chaos. It takes work to maintain a levy that protects a city. Admittedly, the city shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a, not a smart thing to do, to put that city there. But it's there. It could have been protected. Okay. It wasn't protected. It wasn't protected because we have now a government, a state formation that doesn't value the protection of cities and their infrastructure because it is driven by, inhabited by, controlled by big capital, okay, in a way that only the United States can evince. The Finnish government would never do anything of the sort, okay. Uh, so it is not enough to just look at the criminals in the White House and the the idiots and the people he appoints to be the director of FEMA. You can have jokes about Michael Brown reading his latest emails. Provoked a lot of a lot of laughs, no doubt. But the fact of the matter is, these two are manifestations of a form of government that is grounded in the accumulation of capital, uber alles. Everything is subordinated to the accumulation of capital. Everything in the Bush administration is subordinated to that. And all the environmental laws out the window, all the you know, uh, workers' health laws out the window, every, everything, oh, let's, you know, let's, let's restructure Social Security, boys and girls, all that stuff, you know, lower the taxes on the rich, everything, common feature, Accumulation, uber alles, okay? Right wing. Now, that itself is a manifestation of many complex tendencies. It has its own history. We're not going to get into that. But we do want to mention that it in itself is grounded in capitalist crisis. It is not something that just happens because some evil people are around, although evil people are around. They are empowered by structural alterations in the global capitalist system that go way back, but took a special form in the mid-70s, and that ended up at the Reagan and Thatcher, and then, you know, and we've had nothing but neoliberal right-wing drifts ever since then, and Bush is just, 
he's more than a culmination, he's also a mutation. I mean, there's a certain, a certain weirdness about all this, and we understand that, you know, the neoconservatives deserve study in and of themselves. But nonetheless, again, the active driving force is capital accumulation. All right. The active driving force that, that defunds the city, that puts idiots into power who just happen to be cronies, that doesn't bother putting anybody with any expertise into power. All that, in other words, leaves the city vulnerable to a storm that is normal, but a storm that is greater than normal, even more vulnerable. So here again, you see it's, it's like, you know, it's like the permafrost melting. It's, it's, tendencies that sort of come together and then accelerate a development. See, one tendency of capital accumulation produces global warming. Another tendency produces rotten government, okay? Uh, a third tendency, and these are all tightly related, but we just, we can distinguish them as like analytic threads that are woven together to form a fabric of, of a kind. You're listening to author and professor Joel Covell. Today's show, Capitalism and Katrina. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, a third tendency would be also related to the second is what it is that makes the city unable to be protected. And one of those things is the fact that the normal protective forces, namely the National Guard, was away. Where were they? Well, we know where they were. They were in, they were in Mesopotamia, you know cradle of civilization, waging a war that I'm not going to get into the meanings of for lack of time, but nonetheless is, is palpably related again to the imperatives of capital accumulation. Whether you see this as controlling the petroleum resources, the petrochemical resources, not so much for ourselves, but in order to wage war on other capitalist powers so that China doesn't get it because they want to surround China with military bases. And uh, or whether it has to do with the, with the priorities of the state of Israel, which is something that the United States is deeply embedded with, or whether it has to do with George Bush's Oedipus complex, whatever it has to do with, it still comes down to this tendency that the capitalist system, as it gets to a certain point, expands beyond its borders. It will do so through normal means, but it will also do so through militaristic means, and the two are necessarily tied together. And the war in Iraq, which... The Democrats show their internal corruption by supporting, along with the president, is very definitely a war, again, in which this limitless quality of capital expansion. See, there you see it like inhabiting the psyche of certain people, uh, a Rumsfeld or a Wolfowitz. You know, it turns grandiose under those circumstances. Because, oh, they're going to love us because we're so great. You know, uh, and we're going to bring democracy to the world. We're, 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 we're going to redeem humanity. It turns into these kind of delusions ideological delusion. But again, it's that same expansive force. Now it's, you know, rationalized and put into kind of a quasi-religious framework. So that's another thread, not just taking away the, the National Guard, but taking away hundreds of billions of dollars that should have been spent. You know, they don't want to spend it anyhow, but it would have been more available to spend if they weren't pouring it into the desert and into the pockets of Dick Cheney's corporations and, and the other crooks who get the money with no bid contracts and the like. So, and so it goes. You know, why weren't the wetlands protected around New Orleans? The same thing. Wetlands, well, that's just nature. We don't, there's no profit in that. We're, gonna, we're not going to bother. So every year, Hundreds of square miles of those wetlands 
in the Mississippi Delta disappear, the city is ever more vulnerable. Why not regulate or deeply cut back the Cancer Alley? It's the most industrialized part of the country in terms of petrochemicals. Well, you know, you understand why, because that's bad for business. And so you have these cancer plants, chemical plants, I guess they call them, cancer plants, whatever, pouring their substances, hundreds of strange substances poured into the waters, into Lake Pontarche. Again, that enters into the crisis. And the final thing that enters, I mean, not the final, but for my purposes of this rhetorical device that I'm doing, the last thing I want to talk about is, is the, the terrible poverty and social disintegration of the inner city. I have a good friend, I visited New Orleans, he lives there, he's from there. He loves the city, I love the city, but we both, we go down there and deplore just how that city has been allowed to decay over the years. The combination of poverty at the base and injustice in the form of racism, which is the uh, great American lesion that just goes back to our slave period and the like and which we have very, very far from ever overcoming, which we will never overcome so long as we are a capitalist society that generates this degree of poverty and needs to divide the working classes from each other. And so it is. You have lots of people there who are useless, and once this happens, nobody pays attention to them. They try to cross over into the white neighborhood Gretna across the river. They're turned away by the racist cops there. Uh, they're completely neglected now. In the aftermath of the storm, a process that can only be described as ethnic cleansing is going on. They're being evicted in, in enormous quantities so that their neighborhoods can be reclaimed for high-end, more you know, aggressive um, profiteering that will take place. Uh, it's business as usual. So I want to just say to you that this, this crisis in and of itself is in every manifestation, not only not purely natural, but it is, it's pure of anything. It's a pure culture of capitalist development with these various lines intersecting with each other. And one last point about it. Once it takes place, an orgy of investment is then released. That Oh, my God, we have hundreds of billions of dollars more. Because once you destroy something, you can try to build it up. But they build it up in the way that they built everything up with the corrupt, crooked contracts, with the ethnic cleansing, as I said before. And by, therefore, only increasing the likelihood of further episodes of this kind. And we must accept that as the ecological crisis wends its course, these kinds of disastrous results are going to become more and more characteristic of it. And they were entering, I mean, I hate to say this, but we're entering on an epoch of disaster of this kind. And it'll occur other places as well. It is occurring even as we speak. I mean, the weakening of the fabric of our society, rendering it much more vulnerable to natural upheavals and, you know, possibilities of pandemics and all the like. This is indeed the predicament we are in. And we must face this with a calm, cool, and yet enraged eye. We cannot tolerate this kind of development which threatens the fundamental sanctity and integrity of life itself. One reason I do this work that I do is, well, there are many reasons, but I mean, it's symbolized in the fact that Somehow I brought children into this world, and they're bringing children into this world. And I look at my grandchildren, and I say, oh, my, 
what are we leaving for these kids? And what is the price going to be down the road? And can we, can anybody not devote themselves with utmost human capacity to overcoming this monstrous problem that we have set loose upon the world? Now, in doing so, I just want to say a few things because I've already talked rather longer than I than expected. Um, I want to say that disasters are, are terrible and dreadful, but they also they release all the potentials in human existence. I mean, they release a certain amount of barbarism. They certainly release a certain amount of racism in different people. They release uh, fascistic tendencies in the police and the like. But they also release reserves of cooperation, reserves of solidarity, uh, reserves of compassion. They tear away the facade that life is ordinary, that we sort of live in this trough of, of you know, low expenditure, everything should be relaxed, chill out, turn on the set, don't get too bothered by things. You can't not get too bothered by things when you see this kind of event. I was really struck uh, by the fact that however transient, it was very transient, but the fact that in the, in the few days that this hurricane was, was rending its course and the you know, after effects thereof, you saw for a moment, we glimpsed that we could even have a different kind of press and mass media in this society. I mean, Katie Couric, who has sold her soul to General Electric, she turns to Matt Lowe and says, how can this be? What are we doing here? They couldn't be cool and detached anymore. Some of them, you know, actually went down there and sort of lived amongst the, the survivors. It, it showed that there are certain basic human affinities that can overcome even the, you know, the, the deadening that occurs by the rewards that the system, in, you know, repays those who try to prove their loyalty. And of course, Katie Couric is back to business as usual, but not quite. I mean, they, there's, been a, there's been an after effect of that. I mean, I was really struck the other day. Katie Couric starts the today's show by saying, uh, well, did you hear, Brian, that Washington Post has just uncovered, uh, you know, <laughs> yet more prisons that the United States is sending, you know, torture to torture people. How can that be? And she, was actually, she was actually outraged. Uh, there have been a lot of interesting things like that, not just in this country. You know, in, in England, the, um, the Parliament, the House of Commons, turned down Tony Blair's Patriot Act. You know, they tried to ram a Patriot Act through with using the same kind of hysteria that Bush used, and they said nothing doing. So there are possibilities of resistance that can be called forth by events of this sort. Um, and I, we mustn't uh, overestimate them because they can easily be misled. They can be, they can be burnt out if they don't have an adequate modes of realization. They can turn into their opposite. They can become violent and, and so on and so forth. But they're there and they're there in everybody. And the, the extremity of this event just aroused that in people. You can see it all over. And maybe even got people starting to think, well, why is this happening? Now, if people would take the line of argument that I just raised seriously enough even to debate it, 
I'm quite confident of the outcome of such a debate because there's no other rational explanation of this, ladies and gentlemen. There really isn't. But let's say people did debate that and did say, well, well wait a second. No, this is a disaster. We're going to expect more disasters. And if we think about it, the one thing that makes this disaster happening is this capitalist accumulation and the rampant uh, kind of society that it induces and the sort of government that it induces. Well, if that's the case, we really better take major measures to stop this. Well, that's unthinkable, isn't it? You know, but, but it's also, I guess, unthinkable for Katie Kirk to say, Brian, what's happening? Not Brian. Oh, it was Brian Williams. And Brian Williams was even the best. He was the new anchor. He got really enraged. I, I couldn't believe the guy. He's sort of back to normal now. He recovered his cool. But I think we can see that this is um, Harbinger. It's, it's something that Look, if it goes away, let's say, let's say, hypothetically, this is the last crisis we ever have, and you know, the end of disasters, and we can all settle down. Ah, oh, thank you very much. We can go home. Let's relax. If that's the case, if it's not the case, then I think it's necessarily that people continue that process of activation. All right. And there are many ways of looking at it, and these are ways I can't begin to enumerate here, except to say that they should be seen in the overall light of dealing with the fundamental capitalist problem that afflicts this world today and this country today. That's, that itself would be a major change in human consciousness which would lead to other changes. Okay. This is not to say that, that we have to sort of, sort of just stamp our feet in anger and then say, oh gosh, we've got to get rid of capitalism, because you can't do that. You have to think of all kinds of intermediate steps. But some of these steps are really there. They're right before us. Like, for instance, stopping the Iraq war, okay? I mean, that's very clear. The Iraq war is, is obviously one of those threads that made this disaster. It's a disaster in and of itself, all right? The mechanisms of the press are still trying to control it. The Democratic Party is still unable to deal with this war, but they, they're being moved slowly in that direction. Italian... Uh, TV uh, released a report the other day about the attack on Fallujah a year ago. Uh, the U.S. used white phosphorus, which is a chemical weapon. You know about that. Um, did you know about that by reading the New York Times? No. <laughs> did Katie Couric tell you that? No. Didn't get around to it. They still haven't gotten around. It's been out for about three or four days. And, um, but we have underground media now. We have a uh, Probably most of the people in this room have uh, access to the internet. You know, you, you probably know how to find the channels that will tell you the stories that will, whether it's off the British press, which isn't the millennium either, but it's a lot better than the American press or, or elsewhere. The British press is full of this story, by the way. And it's a very big story. It's hard, you know, you get a little numb after a while of all the crimes and the transgressions and the lies and so on that this government has committed. But I mean, this is so horrendous. Imagine, you know, that they're talking about Saddam Hussein, who was despicable, using these weapons of mass destruction, and here they're using chemical warfare against people who never harmed the United States until we attacked them. I mean, this sort of thing beggars the imagination, doesn't it? So, help dealing with disasters by stopping a war. Well, of course. But then you can't just stop a war. You have to stop the mentality that made the war. You have to stop the weapons industries. Everything is connected. And so you, you can deal with the pattern of connectedness from below. Ultimately, it's transforming society. But in the intermediate, you create zones of resistance. You create places where you can create 
sustainability, but not simply in isolation, but sustainability in the sense of opposition, that you, know, you can build communities of resistance, communities where the state's failures can no longer enter because people are now beginning to take charge of their own lives. There are innumerable ways of approaching this. I refuse to admit that human beings are so bereft of imagination and willpower that we can allow everything that this civilization has been capable of achieving to allow that to go under because of this cruel, brutal, wanton, and monstrous system that is now ruling the world. So that's the lesson of the disasters, disasters we've had, disasters to come, and that's the lesson we have to ponder and go forth with as we encounter this crisis in its next phase. Okay, thank you, and we'll have questions now. You're listening to author and professor Joel Covell. Today's show, Capitalism and Katrina. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So could you talk a little bit about what kind of a model this gets back to the original point I made earlier in the lecture that what characterizes capitalism is a society in which society itself is embedded within and supervised by an economy and everything is subordinated to the economic principle. But you have to think what is then necessary to do to transform this place. I, I say that one way to do this is not to, to wait for hypothetical revolution, but to begin by restructuring civil society from below, to actually develop autonomy, develop community neighborhoods that are in control of their own existence, that restoration of the principle of the commons, for instance, you know, where you have lands that people have access to in common. I think if people had, for instance, if there were communal areas that people had lands where there was lands that everybody could farm or garden collectively, then when a severe storm took place, the, the people would be much more readily mobilized to help each other. What, what you have in a given society is, is a society of intense and intensive and ever-growing fragmentation, you know, of a highly developed individualization. But, you know, I think we can rethink, we can restructure uh, uh, everyday life in such a way uh, as long as we do so with an eye towards the total transformation of society upon which this ultimately depends, in such a way that, that people's lives are more directly intertwined with each other on, on an everyday basis, and there's more collectivity and more sharing. And, you know, ultimately, the estrangement between peoples, within peoples, and the like, and when we talk about uh, capitalism, we mean a society where working people are systematically denied access to and control over the means of production. The only thing they control is their ability to work for a wage, which they sell in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have to overcome that. It's overcome, you know, much of human history, people uh, had common control over the means of production. We can start building collective autonomous zones within our society and use that as a basis to protect ourselves against disasters. Yes, sir. Do you see a hope of a moral capitalism? No. Next question. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's um, one of the all-time oxymorons. It's just, you know, it, it can't work. I mean, capitalism is predicated on amorality. It's predicated on, on not sharing, on not regarding the other as an end in herself or himself, but as a means to your end. I mean, that's, it, it's grounded. Capitalism is grounded in exploitation. I mean, that's what, the, that's what it is. 
Not I shouldn't say grounded. It is exploitation, okay? It, it doesn't exist unless certain people work for other people and produce more value than they get in exchange, okay? It's better to say capitalism is organized crime. Yes? What do you think of the uh, proposed ecological crisis that is in some ways a contradictory desirable one of the peak oil phenomenon that we're running out of oil? Oh. Well, we're not running out of oil, of course. You know, there is a, a change in the, in the expense to, to extract oil, and that's important uh, not to panic in, in the face of that, but to recognize that a commodity such as oil, which is so central to the workings of our civilization, should not be abstracted from, you know, everything else and just, oh, we're running out of oil. You know, the whole question is, what does oil mean to us? How is it used? How is it priced? Who's in control of it? These are, these are the key questions. And um, uh, I think it's, um, it's a good thing if, uh, as a result of various shocks to the oil price, we know that oil prices have gone up, okay? Whether that's because we're, quote, running out of oil or because it's just more expensive or because they're manipula it's manipulated by various social crises, et cetera, et cetera, is, is quite arguable. I'm deeply opposed to capitalism. I'm not deeply opposed to all market mechanisms. It's not a bad thing if we consume less oil. It's a bad thing if we consume less oil without any understanding or any ways in which we can build you know, alternative ways of relating to energy, alternative ways of moving around, alternative modes of public transport and the like. So I just wouldn't abstract from that. I mean, the problem with peak oil or that oil is that it, it makes the, the mere physical presence or absence of a base of a commodity, because the oil is not the petroleum you buy, you know, not what you get at the gasoline you get at the tank, right? It's not the, uh, the plastics that uh, you put the milk in and so on and so forth. I mean, all those things are what's happening as the basic petroleum is produced. So you just, you don't want to abstract it from that network of relationships. You want to keep that network foremost and recognize that it's the drive towards profit and the, all the other things we were talking about earlier that is a decisive issue. But within that, to the degree we can con consume less of the stuff, is so much the better, you know? Oh, one last question, yes. Um, when you look at these crises and where we're at, yeah. from the economics of our capitalist society and the Wall Street and corporations and everything, do you see that is healthy in the current state or is it Oh, well, it's, I don't think it's at all healthy. I mean, you know, it, we, there are certain artificial things set into motion to maintain the profitable you know, activity, the accumulation of the ruling class, which are uh, teetering towards, uh, you know, internal collapse. I'm always impressed with how resilient the economic system is. That it's, its demise has been predicted many times over the years. But nonetheless, I mean, you have a society with the with the level of personal debt, for instance, you know, that would, maybe, you know, that'd be one example that is, uh, talk about unsustainable, you know, and uh, you still get five or 10 ads for credit cards in, in the mail every week, right? Didn't you get, you know, buy this credit card, you know, you get 25,000 free flyer miles if you just buy the American Express credit card, and so it goes. So you can see how the way the system is, is geared right now our competitive advantage is, is, is consuming, is buying things and throwing them away, but just buying things. So 
ever greater amounts of debt are imposed on people so they can keep buying things. I don't think that's a good idea. And I think, um, I think it's asking for big trouble. But I've seen too many things over the years when it looked like capitalism was going to slide into some form of chaotic hole and it seems to pull itself out. Uh, there is a remarkable resiliency to it. And I don't, you uh, must bear that in mind. As long as it can think of ways of exploiting labor and producing commodities where value is you know, realized, capital will go on. In my view, and I, we can maybe rest with this, I do think that in the ecological crisis, capital has run up against an absolute limit that will, will bring it down. Because the only way capital knows how to respond to a crisis is by increasing its production. It cannot limit its production, uh, except it falls into an abyss. And however, this crisis is generated by the increase in production. So uh, I think it's you know caught up in a cycle that it can't extricate itself from. But we'll see that play out over the years. There's no immediate correlation between environmental crisis and economic crisis. You know. Uh, I mean, look, look, I mean, look, in the, uh, in the quarter since, in, in the week since uh, Hurricane Katrina, the U.S. economy, quote, grew 3%. Terrific. You know, disaster, economy grows. But that's not healthy. But it's also not simple. You know what I mean? It's no, there's no way of simply correlating economic and environmental crisis. But, you know, the vision is you can have an environmental or ecological crisis which will kill off everybody and the economy will keep working beautifully till the last two people are there. One is a capitalist exploiting the last worker. <laughs> and then and it'll still be working <laughs> as they sink underneath the surface. been listening to Joel Covell in a presentation, Ecological Crisis and Opportunity for Radical Change, given on November 11, 2005, at New College in Sonoma County, California. Today's show, Capitalism and Katrina. Joel Covell is editor-in-chief of the quarterly journal, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Capitalism, Nature, Socialism can be accessed at www.cnsjournal.com. Joel Covell's website is www.joelcovell.org. That's J-O-E-L-K-O-V-E-L dot O-R-G. Contact him by email at J-S-K-O-V-E-L at earthlink.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Words of
wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace.